Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. Uh, as always, brought to you by the lovely folks at Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment experts. Um, on today's episode, I'm speaking to Abigail Giles Hay, um, Chief Data Science Officer at Virtus Cloud, an Oracle Platinum partner specializing in delivering Oracle Cloud projects. Welcome to the show, Abby. Hi, Liam. Nice to be here. I hope that was all correct, what I just said. It is. Um, yeah, that's good. On. That's good. We'll get into Virtus Cloud shortly, but before we do, uh, let's go into your kind of background, your uh, kind of potted career history, if you like. Um, starting at education, so I think I'm right in saying you did a, a kind of bachelor's computer science, um, and then a PhD in computing science and medical engineering. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, both at Newcastle University. The bachelor's was good fun. Like I was one of very few females on there, but I uh, had a lot of fun on it. Um, but then my PhD, you know, four years in a hospital, so quite a unique experience. Oh wow, really? So I was going to ask, what does the what was the kind of focus of the PhD? So obviously, computing science using lots of the skills that you had from the bachelor's, but then what was the medical engineering part? So um, I was based at the Freeman Hospital in Newcastle um, and taking um, ECG, uh, electrical signals of the heart, and then looking to do computational modelling of that. So we literally built a computer 3d heart um, where wow. we could replicate the heart signals but then using um, machine learning to look at how we can separate those heart signals so specifically um, the top part of the heart the atria has a much smaller signal than the the larger ventricle part of the heart so when your heart beats obviously it pushes the blood from the top of the heart down to the lower part of the heart and then it goes around the body yeah. That's how we all stay alive. Great. Um, but the top part of the heart, um, when it relaxes, that signal is actually hidden by the, the bottom part of the signal. So the, the bottom part of the heart is squeezing out as the top part of the heart relaxes. So that signal's lost in, in there. Um, so the, the PhD was about, can we extract that? Can we learn from it? And, and can it actually help us predict when someone's going to have... Uh, unusual heart rhythms so things like atrial fibrillation and ventricle fibrillation can we project that can we predict it based on those signals and um, so we were creating a computational model so that we can test scenarios we can look at um you know experimenting and essentially helping cardiologists understand what's going on that's wicked and it sounds like so i've asked this question to everyone that's been on with a phd about whether you enjoyed the phd process and it sounds like you're probably one of only a couple that have been on that did a relatively kind of hands-on practical version of a PhD. So like you said, you were based in the hospital for four years. So like it was, some of the people have said like after a couple of years of being in the uni kind of on your own, you're the expert in that thing, but you've got a bit of imposter syndrome. Like it's not quite, some of them ended up being quite jaded by it and, and glad they did it but your sounds a bit more practical is that fair yeah it was very practical so I was you know helping take the readings I got to have time in surgery and see heart surgery taking place I got to interact with you know some amazing surgeons along the way I did still have the imposter syndrome you know ultimately I went to present at conferences where you know you've got the world's best you know cardiac surgeons in there and you're telling them about your PhD it, it was a little bit strange to say yeah, the least um, but they were they were really interested because ultimately this was using technology to help them in their surgery so they were coming and asking me questions of could you do this could you replicate this scenario could you you know simulate this could you kind of help us understand this patient's condition so Whilst, yes, I had that imposter syndrome, it, it was really interesting, but also quite intimidating, again, in that world to to be explaining my, what I thought was relatively simple PhD to these incredible surgeons who, you know, were saving people's lives every day. Be honest, how was your first heart surgery experience? Like, that must have been terrifying stroke, like, I don't know, yeah, I, I, I'd probably faint. Uh, I didn't faint, a little bit queasy when I went in, to, I'll be honest, um, but just incredible to see these people at work, like, I I so much respect, um, and and just to understand everything that goes on in that procedure was just, yeah, there's there's no way, no way to kind of explain it to people, it, you kind of have to go through it, um, but it's just the level of respect I have for them. 
That's amazing, and it's really we're already getting a little bit way late, but that's fine. But it's a little, it's a good example of like technology helping professions like like heart surgeons, for example. And it's like we're not looking at AI will suddenly render them useless and we'll have some robot doing it for them. Like it's technology and and additional things to help them. And like you said, they were coming up to you with ideas. Like that's pretty cool as well. Yeah, and I think that's like a core theme if I look back on on my education and through my work life is 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 how technology helps people. Not you know, I had a choice of PhDs when I came out was like I I got offered one where I could essentially go and do uh, build the best supercomputer in the world or go and do this one doing you know helping heart surgeons and and I chose the heart surgeons because for me technology should be enabling and helping people not just either taking people's jobs or you know you know taking over the world or, or whatever it, it's how can you use that technology to enable people yeah I know yeah I, I totally get it and I suppose when you if you were looking at those two options as well like the heart surgeon one it's much more like tangible like you're like yeah that's i i understand yeah where, where your head was at with that for sure and we'll go into world of work then so after the phd you started at uh, newcastle college group as a systems developer what what did that involve and was that a was that a weird jump from hospitals academia phd presenting to like the world's best cardiac experts to then going into industry and having to almost like prove yourself again yeah very much so i think I had that moment coming out of my PhD of, oh, what do I do next? Kind of, you know, do I go down the academic route, stay in academia, you know, keep working on the PhD? Um, And I actually came away and just thought, I want to get into industry. I want to know what it's like to work in industry. So I've spent, you know, at this point, your, your best part of seven years just in an academic bubble and I, I didn't know what industry was really and and so I started at the bottom I went and became a systems developer you know but also doing the database analytics with the data I think that's probably another core theme is data has always di- sort of been around in my PhD gathering the data collecting it you know analyzing it quality etc and then when I went to be a systems developer it kind of naturally fell that I did all the database work and and essentially became like a junior dba in the in the team so i think that's that's what i hung on to and i wanted to learn how a business works like what's pnl how do you you know increase revenue etc i wanted to learn those skills and you don't learn that in academia so no you've got you've got your focus right yeah no that makes sense and do you think looking back in the job you're in now looking after like kind of large-scale data science projects is there something to be said about going in at that almost junior DBA level when you specifically look at data and really understanding like where it where it's stored like how people use it right back to where it comes from rather than just having a nice data set given to you absolutely I think um everything that I've learned along the way so the gathering of the data and all the problems that we had with a, an ECG so little things like electric plugs would interfere with the electrical signal you're recording. So how do you deal with that? How do you, you know, control those variables as much as possible as you're gathering that data? So there's your first kind of example of of where I've dealt with that. Then into systems development, like users are incredible at not doing what you expect them to do. I mean, come on, how many of us have tried to break an app? All of us at some point. Um, so, you know, that systems development just taught me essentially how people interact with this data, how they were going to pull it apart, how they were going to enter something you just really didn't expect, or they want it in a slightly different slice of what you expected. Um, and then as I, I kind of grew in that job, I, I went on to the financial systems. And that was great because now I was into that business world, you know, producing reports and and information to the executive team, but learning how they saw the world. So they didn't want every minute data point. They wanted it summarized in different ways and and understanding that the world kind of got viewed in different ways. And that kind of then started to play back onto my PhD because I could do that forecasting. I could do the mathematical models. I could help them in that sense. So I was starting to lean back onto some of the skills from my PhD. That makes sense. And then after a few years working with the college group, you actually 
ended up back, well, not back because you weren't working for the NHS, but back in that world of healthcare, spending a few years as a data scientist within an NHS department. What was that like, kind of, I mean, obviously you were, it wasn't quite full circle, but was there a natural attra- attraction to the NHS at that time, given your background? 100%. I, I think where I'd started my PhD and, and then going to the NHS was just an, such a natural fit for me that it, it felt right when it came around. Um, obviously, it was at a time when, you know, this term data scientist had just started in, in the industry. So, you know, it was the sexiest job of the 21st century, or at least that's oh, how I got I forgot sold about to that. Me. Yeah, it, it's it's great, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, I'm a data scientist. And I was like, oh, that's like the sexiest job to have. And I was like, not sure about that. Really not sure about that. Like, have you seen the amount of data and cleaning and really mundane tasks I'm going to be doing? I'm not sure I'd put that in sexy. Yeah, it was a really strange phrase. I remember someone did a talk at one of our events saying like, thanks for making all data scientists like an extra 10k a year just by saying it was like the sexiest job title um like it suddenly made like there was this weird like rush of data science um but yeah no i imagine joining in at the nhs at a relatively early stage in a data science process is actually just like a lot of grunt work to get get to the interesting insight yeah and and i think that's kind of what people kind of think that you just go straight into the NHS and you start doing like neural networks and some amazing kind of machine learning models it was none of that it was you know what is the data telling us how can we understand our patients how can we understand their journey in the NHS and how can we make that better how can we interact with them to improve their journey to understand where are their problems um, and and what can we do to solve it at the other side, the balancing act, uh, as we all know, the NHS is under so much pressure, even more so now in the pandemic times, is, you yeah. know, how can we lean it? How can we make it more efficient for the nurses, for the doctors? Can we get that information to them in, in you know, as I say, that summary version so they can make very quick, informed decisions that they can stand behind and, and they understand, you know, we're making this decision for the right reasons. It's probably the absolute example of stuff we talk about quite a lot on the show is like the business or the end user or whoever we might be talking about doesn't really care like what you do as a data scientist in terms of like what model, what technique, what whatever. They want like simple, almost bite-sized outcomes. Um, and when you're talking about NHS and like patient journey or helping doctors make decisions like that's yeah it's probably the ultimate example of that like yeah don't jump straight into a neural network two feet and want to do r&d for nine months like you have to slowly build up to things like that whilst also delivering kind of chunks of value i think that was like the biggest challenge in that project you were balancing you know suddenly we're bringing all this data together so you've got you know, patient um, ethics. Are you using that data for the right reasons? Why are you using it? You know, are you being careful of how you're using it? Is it secure? Is it, you know, can you identify that patient? So you've got all of these very, very valid questions about, you know, safety, essentially, security and safety of that data. But ultimately, as you say, like, we've got a doctor at the other side saying, well, I need to know how many patients this is going to affect. Like, how am I going to interact with them? How do I know if I'm going to impact all of my community or just a, a subset? Um, and then at the other side, the business side of the NHS is, you know, can we reduce our bill in a certain area? Um, can we do it so that we're not affecting patients? Can we switch out a drug safely, for example? Um, can we look at prices across the markets? Can we get it from a different supplier to, to reduce our costs? So you get yeah. this real mix of of the world in in that role in the sense of you've got patients you and me you know we we wouldn't want our data floating around anywhere we we'd want it quite secure you've got the logistics side of the the business looking to lean out the processes and and make it as streamlined and efficient as possible and then you've got the frontline healthcare workers who ultimately need that data as soon as possible so that they can help people yeah, and they need to be able to trust it as well. So, like, because they're the ones that will end up getting the the kind of storm if it wasn't right. So, no, no, that sounds amazing, and I'm sure it was. I'm sure we could talk about that position for ages, but let's move on into the next position, which was a, a kind of step up into a head of role at Caspian in Newcastle. 
was the move into a kind of head of management role something that was kind of always on the cards even when you look back at your PhD days or did it kind of happen by chance or just kind of develop throughout the career what, what do you think happened there I think that developed over time I think I probably very much went through an imposter syndrome as I started at the NHS not entirely sure I could lead teams to four years later I was leading the data science team in in terms of being a senior data scientist I was um, also at the time helping on um, the data warehousing so the business intelligence side of, of the the NHS so making sure the two worlds came together so it's great if you can do these neural networks but if you can't tell the data story to the audience then we've missed the point of doing the data science you, you end up just yeah. having these ideas in a in a back room so Caspian provided quite a unique environment in the sense of it's a fintech, it was a very small company, it was the first step into that C-level suite, you know, now talking to other C-level executives, but in a very small environment. So very entrepreneurial in the sense of you had to really think quickly and, and kind of move very quickly, full on, very full on. Yeah, and was interesting having data having a seat at the table if you like quite early in a company journey because there's loads of like back and forth even now on LinkedIn about that about should data have a seat at that kind of boardroom table in the guise of chief data officer chief data scientist whatever it might be or does it funnel in somewhere else just below that line like in an early stage company like that was it do you think it was beneficial having someone with a data hat on at all times? I think it was. I think we essentially meant that a lot of our decisions were based on data instead of that being the secondary point and, and things like that. But it wasn't just about using data. It's about how do we gather that data? So yeah. it really did form a central pot or point within the, the company to pivot from, um, but also then kind of take de-risk some of the decisions we were making because we could, you know, the data showing back us up, this. Yeah. yeah. So I think it, it, it formed quite a critical point. And that's a, a thing that I think I've learned as we've gone along and, and something I encourage a lot of companies now in my current role is really put data as high up as you can um, because it will it will change everything you do. And, and really, it's not about how you're going to use it. Yes, obviously, that is a big part of it in, in terms of the ethics and the governance behind it. But actually, how did you collect it? Like, yeah. how did you interact with someone to get that data? You know, when they were filling in that field, did they really understand what that field meant? Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people forget that aspect of the biggest informant of, of a machine learning model is your data. So collecting it and how you collect it and in making sure there is no bias in that collection process has such a knock-on impact further down the chain. Yeah, I had a really interesting conversation yesterday, actually, with a startup in Italy who are looking at stuff like data quality and specifically around the kind of MLOps pipeline. But she, um, she pointed me towards an article that Google did, I think, and it was something like 92% of data in machine learning models is like is like incomplete or not hugely useful in some way but the main point of all the projects is to get the models up and running and get them working but they kind of forget about that stage of like well is the data any good yeah and, and data governance and the data backbone as i call it you absolutely have to have the foundations in place so looking back at the nhs you know we took so much time just to describe the data to understand it to look for those gaps to how can we either enrich the data? What other data sets could we put next to it to help bridge the gap of the nulls? But then also use that to inform the front end um, applications to say, did you know you've got a gap here? Did you know that you're always getting this weird value coming through the system? And often yeah. they didn't. And they're the kind of low hanging fruits that then had the knock on impact further down the project. Four years later, that's now corrected. You know, we're getting even richer data through that makes the machine learning models even better and, and reduces things like bias uh, and, and problems that you, you get in the ML ops pipeline. Um, yeah. So that, that backbone has to be in place before you can get to the ML models. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and it's, yeah, the having that in kind of the forefront of your mind on all the projects, I'm sure makes a massive difference. Um, and let's jump in then. So we've caught up uh, early 2019 
th- those pre-pandemic days that we're all pining for. You moved to uh, Virtus Cloud as their chief data science officer. What kind of drove you to make that move? Uh, I suppose at the time, but also kind of what what about Virtus kind of appealed to you? So Virtus worked globally. So I think um, it was great at Caspian learning that sea level role, um, but it was national. It was with um, you know in anti money laundering. So it was fraud analytics, which is by the way one of the coolest areas to work and so many different unique ways that people will try and get around systems um you learn about people's behavior in a completely different light um <laughs> but then going to vertice they had they're a bigger company so i was now operating you know with a bigger team um globally so you know i head up us and uk operations i think also the fact that i was going to get to do far more presentations so I'm very much someone who wants to help the community. I think you've seen that through my PhD. It's about technology enabling people. So getting back onto the stage and being able to present was was a key thing for me to educate people. Because for me, if we don't educate people, we're going to walk into a problem with machine learning and artificial intelligence that actually we all need to be aware of. And, and that's the biases in it. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And well, how how do you best explain then what you and the company do? I suppose from a, if you take data science away from it, so what what does the company focus on? But then also, where do you then kind of come in with the data science team and deliver projects around that? So we um, do everything from data integration, data management, um, through to data analytics. So we we do the whole pipeline for customers if they need it. Um, but where I come in is at all points. And, and this is the whole premise of that data backbone is even if they come to us saying we've got a proof of concept we want you to do, I'll still get oversight of it. I'll know what's going on and I'll say, look, they've got an opportunity to do data science for um, data quality here. They've got data science opportunity here to grow their business. They've got a data science opportunity here to, to look at uh, enriching their data and moving it a step further. And that's built in even at the proof of concept stage so that that then is baked all the way through their integration. So we're enriching the data. We're looking for um, context that could help a machine learning model later down the line. So something as simple, let's let's take anti-money laundering. So Liam, you have gone out for your uh, evening meal and it's cost £150. Is that normal? Do you normally spend £150 on a meal? Question mark. No, no. No. So we can add context to say, you know, that's above the norm um, by looking at, you know, where it is in, in a distribution. And, and we can add those data points or, or context to the data during that integration stage. So as it's then data managed in the database, we have that context there. So as soon as they want to slice and dice the data, we can say, actually, we can put a red flag against that transaction and say, hey, Liam, that looks a bit suspicious. You know, that's not your normal spend on a on a meal. You know, maybe it's a restaurant you've never been to before, for example. You know, these are all red flags to say, yeah, this might be one to 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 bring together. And that then informs your analytics. So how many of those have you had? How can we display it, etc.? So that that's the yeah. fraud world. So we do lots of different fixed scope offerings to either do phased projects for customers. And really it's about, can we get return on investment as soon as possible? Can we get them as close to their data and using their data as quickly as possible? Because we believe in um, that data helps customers drive forward and should be the heart of their business. That makes sense. And I think I asked you this before, but um, kind of off the recording, but do you have a nice niche where you are, given that you are, as a company, implementing kind of complex, large-scale enterprise oracle solutions and quite often you'll be really ingrained in a customer's kind of decision making and if they then want to make use of data you're already kind of you and the team are already there and like you said you'll get you can spot these opportunities from the start like is it quite nice to be able to package all of that up rather than for example if you and the team didn't exist and they were using Vertice to do an Oracle implementation, they would almost have to get someone else. Yeah, and, and I think that's, again, a unique blend of, of skills is that we have that integration team, we have that management team, but then we have people like myself that are more on the thought leadership side, but we're keen to help companies use that data. So 
Um, it might be something I've seen in other industries and bring it across to them and say, hey, this usually works in the automobile, you're in finance, it doesn't matter, we can change the context, but you may yield some incredible insights um, yeah. that we've seen. So, you know, we work across industries, we, we don't really see analytics being, you know, just for finance or just for HR. But actually, there's lessons learned from all of those industries that we can bring in through expert services um, through the thought leadership that I do. And, it, and it's great for me because I get such a variety of projects from sports analytics through to fraud um, down to HR and people management. So you, you get such a, a range of data sets. Yeah, no, that'd be really cool. Um, and you're also one of a few, and you can tell me the right number, um, Oracle ACE directors across the globe. What does that mean? <laughs> so we are recognized for um, essentially being technically, but also um, speaking about Oracle technology and how to use it, how to get the best from it. That doesn't mean we always champion Oracle. Sometimes we have to you know, lay into Oracle a little bit and say, you know, this doesn't work, this does work. But we do a lot of comparing and contrasting across the technology spheres. Um, in my world for analytics, it's very much the open source versus Oracle is, is often a, a big question I get a, a lot yeah. of. Um, but also as an ACE director, I get to do some of the beta testing with Oracle, which is amazing. So I get to see some of the cool new technology hitting the market before it even hits the market. Um, we often blog or present about it. Obviously, a lot of virtual work at the minute um, in terms mm. of uh, virtual presentations. Um, but in person and, and, and talking to people. Uh, so there's only a few of us who are ACE directors um, and we work very, very closely with product managers within Oracle and, and kind of help articulate clients' concerns, client questions to Oracle uh, to make the next iteration of the software. That's cool. This might not be an appropriate question, so you can let me know and we can cut it out. <laughs> okay. Um, but Oracle Cloud seems to get... As well, in the circles that I'm working in, Oracle Clouds isn't really spoken about in the same sphere as AWS, Azure, especially in that kind of data science, data engineering, and even like GCP kind of creeps its head every so often. Is that because Oracle Cloud is something that you would implement in a larger scale Oracle solution and it's not something that you would just use standalone? I think it's fair to say Oracle Cloud came to the market slightly later to, than everyone else and is possibly playing a bit of catch up in the background. Yeah. But what I would say is the leaps and bounds they've made, especially over the last 18 months, I think you're going to definitely see a change in that market. Um, yes, at the minute, it does tend to be data science, Oracle data science next to an Oracle implementation. That's generally yeah. what we're seeing. However, we are now seeing a couple of customers who are other platforms wanting to actually utilize the Oracle Cloud. And some of that's to do with um, the cost measures, um, so the way data trans uh, is moved across the clouds. Oracle's costing is better than other platforms. Uh, and some of it is to do with the, the new technology coming out. So I think nice. you're going to see a shift. I think, well, we've been kind of waiting on this like surge of GCP in a lot with a lot of our clients, and it just doesn't really seem to happen. And then AWS still seems like it's a little bit above Azure, but it does feel like there is room for like another major kind of player to, to kind of come in and, and offer an alternative because yeah it's not like they're the only option so no that's really cool and it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that especially with some of our kind of larger uh kind of consultancy clients who are delivering like you said across a breadth of different industries is there going to be a niche for it and stuff like that so that'll be really cool on to my favorite second topic my favorite second topic my second favorite topic <laughs> there we go uh, of the show today is around building teams you obviously led teams in nhs um caspian was a small kind of entrepreneurial startup but again i imagine there was a kind of data team in play um and then now kind of on the c-suite of a global company so dealing with lots of different teams whether they're internal or external in your experience is there a is there a good way of kind of building and maybe even more crucially just now retaining kind of high performing data teams and ideally kind of diverse teams as well? Yeah, I think the, the key word you just said there is diverse. Like I'm all about diverse teams. Um, and I think this very much comes from the NHS um, projects I was involved with. So I was part of a data analytics learning lab um, and that sounds really cool. It had a short name called DAO. But the whole point about that team was like, we would 
we got up to 12, but we started off very small. We were like three or four of us, but we weren't all data scientists. And I think that's where, like, and you alluded to it earlier, we have this massive data scientist coming out with masters in X, Y, and Z kind of thing. But actually in that team, the reason it worked so well is that we had a database expert in the team. So we had a DBA. We had a um, coordinator, a project manager, essentially. Um, she would coordinate meetings. She would coordinate who knew what, where in the business. She'd actually worked for the NHS for like over 40 years. So she knew everyone and anyone in the NHS. It was amazing. That's what you need. Someone who just like, is just tied in, like 100%. just completely tuned into the company. Exactly. And then we had um, a pharmacist in the team who knew a bit about data, but it wasn't her strong point by any stretch of the imagination. Her strong point was the drugs and, and, and you know how they interact in the body and how to talk to pharmacists. But the point is, like we all came from different backgrounds. So as we built up the team, it wasn't a case of going out and getting five data scientists. It was like, okay, we'll have a couple of data scientists, we'll have a couple of pharmacists, we'll have a doctor, we'll have a business coordinator, we'll have a data management person. And as we grew, it was getting the right balance of those people because yeah. we all brought something different to the table. We all saw the view in in a different way. And I think if you look at, you know, now I'm when I'm recruiting for data scientists or I'm, I'm you know, looking and comparing our job specification to other people's, if you try and write a job specification for a data scientist, I think they need about five PhDs, three masters, about 10 to 20 years experience and having worked across, you know, Microsoft, Azure, Google, Oracle, uh, SQL, Python, R, Scala, you know, you get my point. It's a, a massive wish list of like ridiculousness. Unbelievable. Some of them that I've read in the market, I'm like, I even wouldn't qualify for that. And I've been doing this for, you know, six, seven, eight years. Like I wouldn't qualify for that job and I'm a C and, level. And it pays 35K. Exactly. And and I think this is my whole point. It's like, if you're making a data science team, diversify your team. Like, look yeah. at what skills everyone's going to bring and then make the balance within that team. It seems to have been happening a bit more, and I don't know if you agree with this, especially because you'll have a nice view of your clients as well. It seems like we've went away from, okay, we've got this data science problem, let's hire four data scientists. It seems like people have started thinking about it a bit more, so they'll have like, okay, we need a couple of data engineers because they will do that part of the kind of project. We'll have a data scientist who'll do the, the modeling and we'll do a lot of R&D stuff for us in the background. And then we'll also maybe have a product owner. That's like an, our product manager has been a new big push with a lot of people in, in the kind of data project world. It's having someone that's their product isn't always a product it's actually just the data yeah i think i think we've also seen the title data storyteller that's an interesting title uh, i've seen around as well i know what they're getting at but i can't get on board with stuff like I storyteller can't. like data translator feels better um but, but people it, get confused with yeah. translation literally but yeah no so yeah data product owner data storyteller translator that kind of job where Maybe they were hands-on before and they could roll their sleeves up and get into some Python or um, kind of statistical modeling if they had to, but their job's actually to kind of face off to business, come back to data, kind of like what you would call a business analyst in yeah. the finance world before. Like they, they bridge the gap between the two teams and they understand both of them enough. Um, so those kind of people, and then even, we've already talked about MLOps, but have rather than just assuming your data scientist or data engineers will take on ML ops and kind of looking at stuff like scalability and reproducibility. It's do we just have people, someone external, internal doing that part? So it does feel like data teams are even within themselves getting slightly more diverse, but I have a long way to go. I would have thought very long way to go. I, I definitely agree that we are seeing that shift in, in the, the business arena is that now it's not a case of how many data scientists can I employ but more what's right for my team going forward in the future. I think the one that you might have missed there that I'm still seeing a bit of a gap in is someone who can do uh, machine learning testing or data science testing. Interesting. So do you think that, because would that, in some areas, would that fall into almost like an MLOps engineer, like it sometimes can in DevOps in the software world, where it's like that kind of continuous integration, deployment, testing almost becomes part of it? Or do you think there's a big enough area that 
your job is testing. So I think the reason I say that that's a, for me, where I'm seeing a bit of a gap at the minute is your traditional software tester, you know, unit testing, integration testing, all of that is still very valid. It still has to work. It still has to plug in as a module. It still has to give a response, etc. But it yeah. goes one step further and it, it touches onto your ML ops. And this is where I think the there's a gap at the minute is there's then the biases and, you know, has the right data gone in? Have we trained it on the right data? Is that data representative of society, of, of where it's going to get deployed? Have we actually, you know, trained that ML model on on an unbiased data set, for example, or on a biased data set? And, and what's that impact going to be further down the, the line? So kind of like um, when Amazon did that whole mess up, I've mentioned this loads on the podcast. I'm probably going to get sued at some point by Amazon. Um, but it's in the public domain, so I can say it if I want. Uh, when they trained a kind of recruitment, piece of recruitment software, and it just recommended loads of white guys because their data was all just white guys. So yeah, if, the, if they had a machine learning tester, maybe, and even if it got to the point of like manual testing to some degree, they might have been like, hold on a minute, everybody. Like, yeah. this is actually quite a biased data set, so we're probably going to get biased results. Exactly. And I think that's where, for me, there's a little gap at the minute is people being able to create synthetic data sets that would test the models to that extent. Yeah. And, and, and really push it to the extremes and the boundaries that your normal tester might not think to do. And would that person therefore need an understanding of machine learning and data science, and but also, yeah, so that's where it maybe gets a bit tricky. That's the skill to, part. That's the, they need a bit of statistical understanding, a bit of machine learning understanding. They need a little bit of data understanding, but they also need the testing hack. Um, so, and that's why I say at the minute, I feel like that might be the gap in the industry um, yeah. and, and finding someone who can do that and, you know, because a lot of data scientists want to be in that R&D world. They want to be doing lots of models and stuff. They maybe not got that testing hat of, okay, how does this actually hit the real world and, and how am I going to test it? Yeah, and I think that's the problem, which, again, is my very uh, basic understanding of some of the issues around MLOps now is that data scientists want to be doing R&D. They want to be deploying new models. They want to be looking at new kind of ways of doing things. And quite often at the MLOps side, it is the sim more simple things of is the model still working like is it still producing results is it still relatively uh, or is it still doing what we thought it was going to do yeah um and people kind of obviously forget about that because it's like well i've deployed that model it worked back then and i want to do something new with this new data set or this new company that we're working with so yeah it's it's getting that part right of the data is probably still not as mature as say in software exactly um, but yeah. also devops and software are 10 15 years ahead so like it's kind of one of those things where you would hope it will just slowly play catch up. I think it will catch up. I just worry that we are in this, you know, how many models can we create? How quickly can we deploy them? How quickly can the business, you know, yield something from it that actually are we in walking ourselves into a, a bit of a problem? Are we walking into yeah. a cul-de-sac that's not going to be retrievable? Yeah, are we going to get to the point where someone does something really bad, like with AI models or machine learning models, and then it's like, okay, we actually need some like rules here. Yeah, and and, and take take your Amazon example there. Like, do we end up? You know, we we always talk about there's not enough females in C level positions, but if we've now got a HR system that's recommending you know, the 50-year-old white male to be promoted to that role, are we exacerbating the very problem that we all recognise needs to be resolved? Oh, 100%. I, I, honestly, again, I always go off on a rant at some point, but the amount of different tools that I, we get sent on a kind of weekly basis or monthly basis where I work about use our AI tool to help you like sift through CVs or to identify candidates or whatever. Like it's all, like it's just you're asking for it to be really biased or like too basic almost so like you're just going to churn out yeah loads of like white men because they're the most easily available technical professionals and they're skipping out the human part and and again you've hit onto a core theme for me is is that human part how are we enabling humans are we actually enabling them to walk into that cul-de-sac or are we enabling them to see the problem that they could avoid yeah, well, if you think about it, if you if you gave me a machine learning model that would churn out into my inbox every day all of the software engineers in Edinburgh that 
had C-sharp experience. Like the majority of them are going to be male. And if you turn them all out and you can like almost auto shortlist them, you're just automatically going to have a really strongly weighted and kind of biased shortlist. Whereas if you can curate it yourself and do more intelligent searching and an active sourcing, then you can kind of, you can influence that agenda more. And that's a really small example. If you look, if you think about Amazon's hiring, like that would be thousands as opposed to a couple of hundred for us. Like it's just that, yeah, I can see what you mean about that. Um, we've talked about regulation on the show, not for a while actually, but nobody really seems to have a, like who does it? Was our, the main, th- the last time we spoke about it was who does it? Because we'll avoid the politics of it, but we can't have the government in charge of an AI, like, rules. Um, but then, then who is? And then is it ever going to not be biased? So, yeah, it's a really hard question to answer. I, I don't I don't think there's a, an answer to it. I, th- I personally think we all have a responsibility to AI models. And, and, and I think where I mean by that is not just technical, I mean just in our daily lives like understanding who we're giving our data to how it's getting used and when you're interacting with a machine learning model so do you understand that you know for example that when you buy something that recommending engine at the bottom has actually used your data to recommend you the next product to buy and and are you aware of that and and the kind of are you happy that that's how your data is getting used yeah, I'm so fast and loose with my data. Like, I kind of like I I tried for a while, and then it's just like, do you know what? Like, whatever. Although I had my another another ran incoming about Hermes. <laughs> Knowing chatbots were going to be the next big thing, like four or five years ago, I had the most infuriating conversation with a chatbot yesterday, where I couldn't get round it. <laughs> like, I didn't have the answers I was giving weren't in their prescribed list, so it just eventually just kept saying, "Sorry, we can't help you." Like, do you want to have another query? And like. I was so close to throwing my laptop out the window and it's that it's a good example of like trying to be too clever almost with a solution which it actually just needs someone to speak to on the phone for two minutes yeah have you have you heard about the chatbot I'm not going to name the company that actually somebody interacted over with it so much that the chatbot learned to swear so it started then swearing back at customers <laughs> which I just think's genius whoever sat there for an hour talking to a chatbot in swear language to retrain it to basically swear at all of the customers. I think that's just genius. Oh, I might try and do that to Hermes if I've got time this afternoon. Yeah, that's, that is really funny. And yeah, again, chatbots have a place and they can enable customer service teams or they can enable um, like cutting down time but someone doesn't need to phone the bank. They can just quickly message. Like, yeah, or flow, and, and, flow the data to the right team. That makes yeah. complete sense. And like, the absolute like winner of a chatbot is like when someone like my dad doesn't even know it's not a person whereas like y- yesterday it may as well have just screamed i'm a robot like it was just so frustrating right on to my last and favorite topic of the day uh we're going to talk about football which hasn't happened on the show for a while so you're a coach um at walls end football club uh, for the girls team they're pretty well known in amateur football uh in terms of the football club as a whole um with lots of kind of like who's who of Newcastle-based professional football players have kind of come from them, right? Yeah, Alan Shearer is the classic. He was a Walsend Boys Club um, member, um, but Michael Carrick as well, Steve Bruce. So, you know, the we have definitely, on the boys' side or the male side of the club, generated some incredible players uh, for England and Newcastle United um, along the way. Which is and Man United, importantly. And Manchester United, we're not going to talk about that. We're definitely a Newcastle team up here. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's amazing the kind of setup that the, the club had on the boys' side. Uh, I joined the, the club two and a half years ago. Um, originally first team assistant coach um, to the women's team uh, and ended up becoming the women and girls coordinator for the club. So essentially joining up the pathway of girls into women's football. Um, nice. And helping them not replicate, but have the equivalent side of football that they have on the boys' side. Can we replicate and have the similar offering on the girls' and women's side? So now we have a Wildcat Centre that has the youngest players in there, so like uh, four to 11-year-olds, but then we have uh, under nines, under tens, under 11s, 14s, 15s, 16s, 18s, and three women's teams. So it's massively grown in two and a half years. Um, That's class. I did a little bit of football coaching with four-year-olds, and oof. 
that that is a job it is hard Um, i I had to play santa last night so yeah it was it was fun um (laughs) it was good to have all the four-year-olds running around getting the selection boxes and stuff so it was good fun um that's class so i still help out in the wildcat center even though i'm the head of the whole program um and i'm a first team manager as well i i still love to get down and and enjoy kind of watching the four-year-olds chase a football around the pitch Yes, that's a very good description of it. And uh, people might, before they switch off, people might be thinking, why are you talking about kids football or football in general on a data podcast? And partly because it's my show and I can do whatever I want, but also because you actually did it, I think a passion project, a side project. If you wanted to be one of those tech people, you could call it a side hustle, where I think I'm right in saying this, you wanted to find out how what kind of data kind of platform you could build for 500 quid or less using Oracle Cloud, is that right? Correct, so I kind of set out with this challenge of like, you you watch the Premier League, you watch WSL and they have all these stats about like how many passes they are and who was where on the pitch and you know, this many offsides and stuff like that. And I was like, I'm stood at the side of a grass pitch in the middle of nowhere. The rain's coming in sideways. We don't have all that amazing camera GPS technology that's cost, you know, £50,000. We might, if we're lucky, have a parent with a camera watching the game. <laughs> yeah, you get the you get the idea. Is I'm yeah. talking proper grassroots football. And yeah. I was like, can I transfer what we record on a video or what I see into analytics and and bring it to life for my players so that they could learn from it. So, you know, they'll say, I I spent most of my time in the opposition's half. Well, is that true? Could we quantify or give their average position in the first half versus the second half? Could we, you know, show it in a diagram where they are or how many passes they've done and stuff? So I kind of set myself this challenge of saying, right, it's got to be grassroots. So let's say 500 pounds because we've not got a lot of money. Um, could we build a platform where you could upload a video and it would analyze it? It would essentially say the average position of a player is here and this is how many passes and this is the heat map for it. And this is how many times there was an offside and things like that. And essentially, yes, I can. And um, using the Oracle Cloud, mainly because that's where you know my skill set is and, and it's available to me. Um, basically, I created a, a, an open source and an Oracle um, database plugged together where you feed in a video, it works out the coordinates of the players, it identifies them, it changes it into structured data in the database that enables us to then look at their average position and, and buy timestamps and things like that. It's just genius, though. Like when we talked about this at the start, like maybe not a four-year-old because that's the other end of the spectrum. But if you're looking at like kind of twelve to eighteen or whatever, when you're trying to do, when you're trying to coach, it can be quite difficult. And quite a lot of the time, you're talking about stuff that they've just done or they did in the previous match, and like people don't remember. Like it can be hard to, like you said, I spent all my time doing what you told me to do, and then you're like, well, no, you didn't, and it's just an argument, right? Yeah. Whereas if you've got data if you've got some relatively simple but nice looking visualization then you can kind of show them like listen this is what i meant and this is what actually happened or this is why it really worked like look how well we did last game because of you three at the front did exactly what you were supposed to do and and that's the impact i'm now seeing with my women's first team is that i can literally put the the pictures in front of them and say this is where you were this is your average position when you know for this period of the game so for the first 15 minutes we didn't perform very well, this was your position. You know, in the second half, you pushed further up the pitch, this was your average position. Look at the difference. And they're like, oh, this makes so much more sense. Yeah, and it's, and even like, yeah, yeah. just, I, there's so many different ways it would work. I'd actually love to use it at fives because like there's so many people that you play fives with that they think they are doing loads or like, I don't know, like their heat map would just be this one little bit of the pitch. Yeah. Like they don't, they don't actually do anything, but like, they remember the two goals they scored but yeah no I mean from a coaching point of view it would be pretty epic and I mean there's also there's so many ways you can go with it right like there's so many different avenues because you've you've done it on a shoestring so like it's it's so cool and I imagine very useful as a kind of competitive advantage as well I think it will be in the future when I get to that point I think like any 
little side hustle. It started off with a tiny little question of, can I do this? And I guess I've said, yeah, I can do this. But like you say, there's now just so many different analytics I can look at. So for example, how fast do we counter attack? How many offsides do we have? You know, when we're defending, are we close enough together uh, as a defensive unit? How many shots are outside the 18 versus inside the 18? And then you can look at percentages of like those goals, like, listen, let's stop taking shots from 30 yards because we've scored one. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. That's, um, how did you guess that that's a classic (laughs) in my team at the minute? Um, But yeah, exactly that. There's just now a raft of ideas come from it and because I've got the the basics there and and I and I coach football, I understand football. Again, it, it's that mixture of domain knowledge with my technical skills. Um, so whilst people think it's often a bit of a weird segue into a conversation, actually it, it's amazing how many people, as soon as I start talking about this story, they're like, that's cool. Have you thought of? And, and it's yeah. just such an icebreaker because suddenly everyone's like chipping in with ideas of, could you rescue Newcastle United season? Could you? <laughs> even even you're not that good. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's really cool, and it'll be it's really cool to see where that's going to go as well. Um, do you post much about that? Like, have you got any like so, um, literature on it or something? When we post the podcast, I can kind of share it as well. Yeah, I'm this Christmas. I well, a little bit of time off uh, over this winter period. I'm gonna write up a few blogs on it, start posting them, uh, and the other thing, um, we're gonna actually make the code available on GitHub. So if people want to get involved and have a go and play around with it, they can. Um, We're going to try and make some of this code available. It it was always set out as a thought leadership kind of art of possible. Could it be done? And I guess the answer is yes, it can be done. At the minute, you need some Python skills to get it up and running and stuff. But if you've got a parent or someone, you know, a, a student coming out of uni who's got a bit of those skills and is into football or into sport then absolutely, you know, have a go at it. It's potentially an amazing segue to get someone into sport, into data. Exactly. And and I think Like that's, one of the kids or whatever. I, I'm definitely seeing some of our 18s have been coming and asking me about it, um, which is really cool because, you know, that could inform where they're going in uni. Um, so if I could get like 18, 18-year-olds 18 to go to uni and do data science, I think I'm winning. <laughs> All for 500 quid, that'd be unbelievable. Yeah. Um, all right, nice one. No, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely, by the time we get this out, you, the, some of that stuff might be available, so I'll, I'll link it up, and if not, we'll just post about it whenever. But I think that's all we've got time for, but thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate you coming on, uh, and I thought it was amazing. Thank you, it was good to be here.